the Niche Podcast for Friday, July 13th, 2012. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaber. And we're here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. On this week's show, we talk about active record and SQL views, complexity in the database versus the middleware, automated testing, Hadios versus option requests, etc., etc., etc. Uh, I think at a certain point we talk about everything from coffee printers to Predator P and the future of bricks and mortar retail. So get comfortable, grab a drink. The Niche Podcast is next. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Uh, good. Pretty good. Good. It's a hot one here. Oh yeah. Mm. Yeah, I haven't even looked to see what what the temperature is here. Yeah. Yesterday was so gorgeous, light breeze, cool. Today is a typical summer in Rhode Island. Yeah. Hot and humid. Yeah, it looks like we're at the same temperature right now. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got that going for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually broke down and bought a second air conditioner. Wow. It was 90 degrees in my living room the other day with the center layer going full time. Ugh. That's, that hurts, having central yeah. air and then having to put a, would you put, get like a window unit? Yeah, we just got a window unit to put in the in the living room there. I suppose it beats the fan with the uh, tray of ice water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I did that in the office. Yeah. Uh, a while back. Yeah. One time in college, I thought I was being clever by uh, an extremely hot day in our dorm. I took one of those little, had one of those little cube refrigerators that everybody has in college, mm-hmm. and I uh, left the door open and put a fan in front of it, blowing yeah. out as if that was going to cool off the room, and it worked for. It worked until I fell asleep. What I didn't realize was the uh, the back of the refrigerator got so hot. That uh, <laughs> it it was uh, it kind didn't of, kind of defeating yourself there. Yeah, I, not only did I burn out the refrigerator, but it was uh, you could have fried an egg on the back of that thing. <laughs> You're lucky you didn't burn your dorm room down. Yeah, so young and dumb. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I gotta actually I gotta go in after this and and figure out the air conditioner because. Uh, being in the window where it is, the cat can get to it. And so the cat got in and started playing with the controls this morning. So it's all, <laughs> it's all messed up. It was, it was coming on at like 63 degrees. It's set to come on at like 63 degrees. And, you know, it, it doesn't need to because the central air can keep up until it gets to a certain point. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so I got to go in and, and straighten all that out. Office and cat I, I haven't actually quite learned how to drive the, the window unit yet because it's all, it's all digital and, and weird. Hmm. Sounds like office cat's working on it. Yeah, yeah, he um, he causes a lot of problems that way. <laughs> <laughs> Proverbial curiosity, right? Yes, yes. He's deleted our web stack. He's <laughs> crashed servers. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a Kickstarter project for someone out there. Cat repellent for the keyboard. Yeah. Keep those cats off the keyboard. Yeah, and and off the air conditioner apparently. Yes. Someone that reminds me that someone, uh, a friend of mine who's a web developer, 
tweeted a link out the other day that, you know, one of those, I can't believe I ever worked on this app. I mm-hmm. mean, on this website rather. And uh, so I'm like, and I click on it and it was uh, predatorp.com. And it was like, got mice? You need wolf pee. You know, got, <laughs> got, got wolves? You need moose pee. Is <laughs> this whole chart of, uh, of got elephants? You need mouse pee. <laughs> <laughs> it is nice. hilarious. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I once the closest I've come to that once is as I guess it's a legitimate vertical, but I once did a dating site for people with herpes. Oh wow! So yeah. Anywho. Anywho, want to talk about web stuff? <laughs> yeah, we probably should. Better than talking about pee. <laughs> All right, cool. So uh, I think both of us have at least one fun topic to talk about after the last week. Yes. Um, what has been the last week? Ramping up uh, the uh, new dev project we started last week. Just more and more API development, getting more down into the getting our hands dirty with um actually implementing the api design some of the harder parts and yeah yeah, some of it was was pretty complicated yeah and then i've got an update on a sort of large mobile friendly responsive design project that uh, i did the javascript for well we'll get into it but basically i want to talk about just overloading your app with javascript includes you know script tags and and the pros and cons of of that. But if you wanted to kick off with the um, uh, the API stuff with Active Record, uh, I think there's some interesting conversations there. Yeah, yeah, that was was interesting. Um, I think one of the questions you had the other day. Well, I, yeah, I don't really know where where to start with this because we've done so many things. But right. I know one of the things you were asking about the other day was using MySQL views with Active Record. Yeah, so let me let me set the stage there a little bit. Okay. So the concept uh, the concept is that the the app that we're building is um, potentially it's for a particular vertical, but it's also potentially reusable in other verticals or as a public service. So when we did the data model for it, we didn't want to paint ourselves into a corner right out of the gate and have to rearchitect the thing uh, for things that we knew were pretty obvious that we we're going to have to do. Uh, in the relatively near future. So there is a core set of tables in the database that represent the sort of most generic version of the offering. And then we subtyped a couple of the core tables into specific things for the vertical. So, you know, so a a table like, uh, you know, I don't know, animals would have a subtype for the vertical of cats. And the cats table would have all the specific things about the cat project that were not, you know, not in all the non-specific stuff about animals would be the animals table. So it's a pretty standard, it's kind of like class inheritance for the database. It's uh, it's very, very useful and tried and true um, SQL data modeling or not necessarily SQL. It's just a, it's a, it's a good way to do data modeling. So that's where we started. So the, the concept was, okay, well, how do we deal with that with Active Record? Uh, sorry, with, with the API, you know, which table do we talk to? Do we have to talk to animals and cats? Or, or perhaps, this was what I was hoping would work, 
was that we could create a view that combined all of the fields from animals and cats and called it, you know, something like animals plus cats or whatever, cat, cat plus animal fields, or we come up with some name for the view and then use that like a table um, uh, that Active Record could, you know, play with. So, so that's kind of the background. Yeah, and so when I originally, when I set it up in the API, going through it the first time, um, I got to looking at the active record and the relationships between tables, and, and I thought to myself, eh, I don't need to do it that way. I can, I can, there's there's other ways I can do it and not have to, because looking at support for views and active record at that point seemed really difficult to manage, kind of not kind of not really something maybe something that active record wasn't really designed to do mm-hmm. which but after talking with you I, I got more curious about it and um, anyway I ended up going through and, and getting everything working without using the the table views so mm-hmm. I'm not sure at this point if it's anything worth redoing or not I don't know but after we talked the other day I did did some more research and there's some some interesting findings about active record and views the, the SQL views and um, you know first of all active record doesn't know the difference whether it's acting on a table or view mm-hmm. so in in that sense active records not going to care and right. any sort of any sort of cred actions that you can do on the query view because sometimes you can't do all of them but any any that you can do for that active record you, you can do through an active record model right so like a, a view in a SQL database it 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 can be constrained to not be able to do certain things uh, because of the nature of the relationships between the two tables that make up the view or the or the if there are multiple tables that make up the view so you can if i remember correctly it's been a long time but you can uh, select work just like they wouldn't on a normal table but then you have to worry about um, updates and inserts differently uh, you know if if for example if the view is predicated on uh a range type relationship or if um, uh, what was some of the other things we just looked it up it was ranges oh or derived fields those sorts of things but if you just have a, a, a subtype supertype one-to-one relationship uh, with static fields then uh, you can pretty much do what w- what we would need to do with an average API yeah yeah, so you've you've had a lot more experience working with views than I have. So part of I feel like part of the friction there initially was was due to my own confusion. Gotcha. And and um, yeah. So basically, though, the the rights were my concern then that you know there are a couple of instances where we have to talk to a model or to a table directly and it's for rights rather than you know most of the most of the retrieval. Yeah, you know, uh, for a lot of them, a view a view would work, but there are a few instances where we need to view, it's kind of the singular, kind of core table, mm-hmm. and there are several instances where we need to write to different, either either the core or just the, sort of, subtype table. Right. So animals and cats. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was mainly where my confusion was, and I was confused about that and what that would do as far as object relationships, uh, as far as active record was concerned, as far as relationships and also uh, model validations and uh, accessible attributes. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't really find anything 
in writing anywhere about that because it seems like a lot of people, I guess, probably don't use views with active records, so there's just not that much out there on it. Right. And um, it turns out I haven't done any experimenting yet with it. I I need to do that. But from from what I've done some more digging, and from what I've read and have a little better understanding of it now, um, you're gonna need to create multiple models. Like if you have a if you're using a view table that'll need to be its own model if you're and then you'll still need a core model for doing the sort of direct access to the to the um you know the the core table right the individual tables there within the view you know should you should you need to write or, or view from them individually right so you can't you can't have one model that interacts with multiple tables but uh, what you can do is you can you can create a parent model that has all of your validations and relationships and what have you, and then you can subclass it, you know, and into like sub you know subclassed models that inherit from this parent. So that kind of kind of eases eases things there. But you do end up having to create essentially two models right. in Active Record. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That does make sense. It's it sort of struck me from a just from a philosophy standpoint that if you're using Active Record or really any object relational mapper, you're probably not that interested in doing anything other than sort of garden variety stuff in the actual database. So something like a view or stored procedures or triggers or anything like that, it seems like the kind of stuff that. Uh, the the approach like the rail style approach or a Sinatra style approach is probably um, not as strong at you know and it, it's not it, maybe not the greatest fit and that's just like my sort of like my gut instinct Be because there's so little like if you Google around for it it didn't seem like really that much was out there which made me yeah. think you know obviously it, it, obviously there's smart people working on uh, this this uh, you know Active Record and Rails and Sinatra and I just feel like it's the kind of, it felt like the response that you'd get if you asked like somebody, like a total Rails guru about it. They'd be like, well, why would you ever use, like, why would you not set up your database, you know, more simply, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> and, you know, and I think we have a really good reason. We have good reasons to set it, it up the way we did. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, my, my hope with the views was that it was going to be something that made it very easy and yeah. it definitely wasn't. So, you know, yeah, we're, we're going back and doing it over again now. Um, I think I certainly could use the views. I'm not sure that it would really make things a lot easier just because you do have to sort of have that duplication of there. And I, I don't know, it, it might be easier to do, it might still be easier to do with the views just because the sort of your logic within the code might be a little bit simpler, mm. but, um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I you know I did get it working with Active Record without the views, and um, you know I do I do really like Active Record, mm -hmm. and I think I kind of think I prefer it to Data Mapper. You know, yeah. there's I think it has I feel like it has a little more overhead, but it's also uh, I think a lot more mature, and so I I do like it, but you know, like you said, I'm not sure it's I'm not sure it's the best designed option for what we're trying to do but I'm also not sure there's anything better out there yeah that's my sense I mean the the approach I feel like this the development approach has shifted over the years 
the past decade or two where uh, previously there was tons of logic in the database mm-hmm. and 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 that was sort of sort of moved away from that now it's all in the code it's like in the middleware yeah and now that so much is so much complexity is moving into the middleware it feels uh even to me having started you know the old way where the, the complexity was in the database um having a lot of complexity in the database and in the code feels like <laughs> unstable somehow it's like like once the code starts to get complex i do see the attractiveness of making sure the database is as dumb as possible so i know there's nothing to debug there yeah you know so you you do want to kind of you know it's like all this stuff we're talking about is small team stuff we don't have like a a, a dba working on the database and a team of dbas over there and like a team of you know uh, application architects it's like it's just us so uh, it feels a little feels a little more compartmentalized and nicer if we uh you know just have to we know where to look when there's something that needs to be debugged yeah and so there i can see the attractiveness and if someone argued to me that we shouldn't use views in the database because it should be as dumb as possible like i can kind of i could see that point so i'm i'm actually i'm fine with the way it worked out um it was just a sort of interesting little exercise of uh, taking my my uh, old guy's SQL brain and uh, updating it. <laughs> well, I, I feel like the views, you know, I feel like they can certainly work. It's just something we'll have to have to experiment with and definitely want to want to try out. But I'm just not sure it's worth going back and redoing working code at this point. Yeah, no, I agree. But um, yeah, and it's not like it took a month to do. No, no. I mean, it it took a couple of days, and uh, you know, not full time working on it. I just, you know, just just working on it off and on over the weekend. Cool, yeah, yeah. very cool. And um, actually, <laughs> I tell you one thing it did do though is is make me appreciate even more having having those tests. Oh yeah, yeah. I think I, I think I spent more time running tests and. Tracing tracing errors based on test output and and debugging from tests, um, you know, in all that time, I, I think I maybe opened a browser window and queried the API directly, you know, maybe half a dozen times. Nice, yeah, that's where we need to be. Uh, the te- automated testing is just like, it's so great, because <laughs> this is this API is. I wouldn't characterize it as really complicated. Uh, there's a fair amount to it, but it's not crazy complicated. Uh, but we've got one coming up that's going to be crazy complicated. So, uh, I mean, we would be dead in the water without automated testing. Oh, is that you talking about the shared resource calendaring kind yeah. of thing? Yeah, exactly. Got to get a quote out to them this week. Yeah, that will be <laughs> that will be crazy. On the other hand, though, it doesn't doesn't have the types of types of database setup like we do on this one, where objects are kind of where we have objects kind of abstracted from other core objects. So in terms of in terms of relationships between models and what have you, that's that's actually a little bit simpler. Yeah, it's a it's a flatter model. Yeah, yeah, it definitely. The, the scary thing is calendars. Anytime you deal with calendars, it's like, yeah. how do I do this without creating a record for every minute of every day, <laughs> you know, for the next 20 years? Yeah. So. Yeah, and I mean, it's 
it's so strange. We actually looked at it at one point, like, well, what if we created a record for, you know, is it going to be simpler to create multiple records or, you know, yeah. Yeah. For an event. Is it, uh, it's, that'll be a fun, <laughs> that'll be a fun deconstruction when we get to that point, talking yeah. about that one. So but we can hold that off for another day. Yeah. So speaking of APIs, I am, uh, I, I got a, an email in my inbox this morning that I thought was uh, intriguing. And it's about uh, using HTML as your media type for APIs instead of um, like JSON or XML. And uh, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link to it. I'll link to it in the show notes too. It's the guy actually has some interesting points. How is that really different than using XML though? Uh, because his point is there, there are three main points. First is rich semantics. Mm -hmm. Uh, the next is uh, hypermedia support and, uh, and that it's already standardized and there's a lot of good tools already. And you could, you could say the same for XML, but his sort of argument is that, um, is that XML is kind of like a generic, it's like using divs for everything and then yeah. qualifying them where HTML is already, um, it's already human readable. It already has the semantics that you need for lots of things. Uh, right. And, it's pretty much standardized. Yeah. It's totally standardized. And it's, and you know, he makes one of the, one of his points is that, uh, JSON, which is what we use for pretty much everything is, um, uh, there's no inherent distinction between a, what he calls a, uh, list, a bag or a map which in HTML would correspond to uh, an ordered list, an unordered list, and a, a, a data definition list. And I, I thought that was an interesting point. Um, he, of course, the argument, uh, there's an argument that, well, you know, HTML is bloated. There's all, you know, you've got a lot of just characters that you don't have to have with uh, JSON. And he makes a really funny uh, argument about, well, you know, if you're worried about that, then why aren't you doing everything with a binary protocol? You know, <laughs> uh, we want human readable, you know, just for debugging and uh, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. If, if the goal is human readable, you can always take your response and load it up in your web browser and read it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I am certainly not about to, you know, even start playing with it. Yeah. But uh, it was, I thought it was intriguing and he really, really has a point uh he definitely has a good point but uh, yeah it's it's definitely interesting and if you have an api in some ways i can see where it would it would actually you know there's some use cases where it would make things easier especially if you're for instance talking about a you know like a javascript heavy front-end application um it kind of solves that that sort of issue we were talking about a while back where you know rendering views on the server Right. I mean, if, you, if your whole if your whole API is HTML based, then basically what you're doing when you respond to the API, or when you respond to an API request, is you're sending back a view to the client. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like, you know, why bother going through the translating into JSON step? Yeah, you know, but I think his his strongest point is it does kind of tie in with. Uh, using a pure REST model, which is the ability to uh, link to other content. It creates a distributed model where mm -hmm. uh, JSON and even XML are 
are really a tree-based data structure. Uh, so it's it's a really good article. It's worth reading, uh, if if only to um, point out the sort of cons of JSON or whatever you know whatever you're using, if it's JSON or XML uh, for your APIs. Uh, so it's it's a good read. Yeah, cool. I'm interested in checking it out. That's that's one of the things that I have been a little, I guess, kind of disenchanted about. Not really bothered by, but JSON, but the fact that it's it feels like it's it's difficult to get a true, truly REST, a truly REST API. It's certainly going to have RESTful qualities, you know, a lot of them, but sort of I guess the the hypermedia and and interlinking of of uh, API calls and and what have you there. I feel like that's and maybe it's not not really specific to JSON. I just think API in general. I feel like a truly RESTful implementation is kind of hard to do, mm. and or maybe not necessarily hard to do, but I feel like the the benefits of you know the the trade off there as far as the amount of work and the benefit you get from it. I don't know if it's really really worth it. Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, the the big benefit for me of using sort of like returning the um, you know you you, you <clears throat> request a resource and it comes back you know you get back the data that you want but you also get back kind of like other API calls that you can do to that that thing to manipulate it mm-hmm. and what's cool about that is that in theory you don't have to ever version the API because it sort of self heals so any clients that operate on top of the API would uh, it's like an API within an API almost. So you like get, you get back this response and then you're like, Oh, okay. There are these three calls that I can do to this object that I have. And you never worry about what the, what the URL is or the URI is to that call. You just, it just comes back with the object. So, you right. can, so, you know, I, it's, it seems sort of like pie in the sky to me. It's hard to imagine in the real world that you'd ever, get a huge benefit i mean i I can see the benefit but when you consider the it it sounds harder like you said it sounds harder to build it that way in the first place a lot more planning a lot more development a lot more debugging and then and then to to potentially find out later that ah crap you know i want to make this change that won't self-heal if you will or there, there are all these client apps out there that don't do it that aren't that aren't respecting the calls that way and so they're going to break anyway because you don't have control over those people uh so i don't know i mean in a in theory from a theoretical standpoint it makes tons of sense but um i from a practical standpoint i i haven't drunk the kool-aid on that one yet yeah i'd have to i have to see it in action see a really good implementation of it in action before i'd be sold on it i think uh like you said theoretically it it makes sense and I don't know. Do you know, is there like a standard format for returning that, that linked media? Uh, well, you I know, think and it's like, like this is an up, this is the, like, Oh, you request an object. Here's the, the URL to update it or to delete it. Or is, you know, is there a standard format for presenting that? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I've only, I've only read about it in like a conceptual way. Yeah. I haven't looked at an implementation. Yeah. Cause I'd, I'd be curious to see it, see how, it's implemented as far as, as far as returning you know the the linked media and i'm also curious as to uh as to whether there's some good way to sort of auto generate 
those those resources to return to to the client. Mm. So you're not having to to manually enter all of your API calls into right like inter- each response. Introspect your code so it's so it you just update your code and it figures out what the routes are. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's these are all really good questions, and these are, and those are the sorts of things that make me be like, oh, that's a great idea, and in the long term, it it'd be great if everybody did that. Um, but it, it, like I said, it seems a little pie in the sky, maybe, yeah. maybe in an enterprise environment, um, where something like, uh, like soap and whistles had been very popular. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of feels similar to that to me where you can ask the, uh, the API, what it can do, and then you can act on that programmatically. Yeah. Uh, so it kind of, it kind of feels like that to me, which, um, you know, that did stick in the enterprise. So if you have like tons of teams, uh, lots of developers interacting, lots of um, lots of machine to machine communication and that sort of stuff. And, but it's sort of like a closed environment, not like the wild Internet. Um, maybe it would be more attractive in a situation like that. Yeah, I, I feel like right now. Uh, the way I would do it right now, I think if I were going to implement it, it would probably be some kind of middle ground where, say, you do you do like an options request to the root of the API, and it sends back a URLs to all the models, and then you do an options request to the model root, and it sends back URLs within that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably that's probably where I would leave it at that point. And I can, I can certainly see benefit to that because you can pretty much get all of the, all of the API calls from that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so like, you know, like say you request, they do an options request to, to people and it comes back, Oh, you know, post to, you know, get to people, gives you a link of you know, a list of people, post to people, creates a record, you know, it comes back with something like that. Yeah. So rather than returning them with every API response, you, you just maybe just do a, a request to the API route or the, the model route. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I've found that useful in, in the past when we've just had simple calls uh, to, like, uh, dump the schema of the model. Uh, if those, I'm not sure those two words really go together, right? The schema of the table really is what it was. Yeah. And just in, when doing front-end development, it's just... I've found it really easy to like not leave my environment and just like ping the schema, uh, get a, you know, information back about like what the default values are for the type field or whatever. And, right. uh, it's, it, that's been very useful. And what you're describing is kind of be like the next step of that where it's, it's kind of like probably be used more in a human readable way, not uh, a machine readable way, even though right. that, that'd be doable, but, um, not something that you'd probably build code on top of, but you could just use it to, kind of you know go oh yeah kind of like interactive documentation right right i i'm picturing it like you do an options request on the model and it comes back and maybe it has a a json response that has an array of of objects that have like url and then description Mm -hmm. and then you i guess can kind of build up you know maybe maybe your your client that you're using to retrieve that maybe then formats that into you know a readable documentation type thing Mm. Interesting. That's 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 like the other day I was saying we should have export as JSON from Happy Docs. <laughs> yeah. No, the other day you said we should have export as Sinatra application from Happy Docs. <laughs> that too. Yeah. That's 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 the dream. <laughs> yeah, that is the dream. 
write write the documentation, click a button, and have your finished app, finished API. Yeah, at least the scaffolding of it. Yeah. So the crud stuff. So cool APIs, love them. <laughs> yeah. Just saw that. Uh, I'm not sure if you were on the uh, the uh, email thread for this, but uh, Walgreens released a uh, a public API to mm -hmm. print to Walgreens, so you can uh, incorporate. They they have a little SDK for iOS and Android uh, that you just drop into your apps, and it, uh, and if you say you have a, a photo application, let's let's say Instagram or whatever, they could drop in a uh, an option to print it to your local Walgreens. Hmm. Yeah, like high resolution, or, you know, as high resolution as you're going to get with Instagram. Yeah. But uh, you can get, you know, physical glossy prints, uh, just, just output at your local drugstore. And if you imagine that, um, I mean, imagine if it caught on and then you started to become yeah. normal that in every, you know, let's say Apple's like, hey, this is a good idea. Let's... Uh, Let's just include it as part of the OS and, you know, iOS, and it just becomes, it just shows up everywhere. One click, you know, pay with your iTunes account, go straight to Walgreens, and you just get a little, get an email to your, you know, dot .me account or whatever Apple's using these days. And uh, so it says, tell hey, you it's ready. Yeah, your pictures are ready. Or, yeah, and, and then what if instead of having to go all the way to a Walgreens drugstore, what if you end up with these little kiosks everywhere sort of like a red box? Yeah. That would be crazy. So yeah, you get a push notification in the app that your photos are ready. Uh, that's, I mean, that is the way. That right there is the way things are going to be. Like, you know, just connected. Everything's going to be connected. So, yeah, I want to. I want to be able to just kind of like order my coffee and bagels from my mobile app, and then, you know, pick it up at this little, the little kiosk machine on the corner <laughs> on the way home or you know, on the way to work in the morning that kind of thing yeah i think i talked about in the in the previous episodes i i think i talked about the idea of a coffee printer or a bread printer yeah. where you know why can't in a densely populated area like say uh you know in manhattan there's you know tons of tons of people uh all around just consider an apartment building you just like launch your Dunkin Donuts app and uh, there's a Dunkin Donuts affiliate in the building you can see that she's three or four floors down you place your order she's got some hardware that you know she's a she's a not an affiliate but what do you call a, a franchisee Franchise. yeah she's like a standalone in-home franchisee and she's got like supplies and she's got a, a special coffee maker and she's got a special uh, bakery machine the bread printer and yeah. uh you know, you place your order and you get a ping. It's, you know, it's going to be done in five minutes. You get on the elevator. She hands it to you. Payment all yeah. happened previously. You, you pick it up from the stay-at-home mom on the fifth floor. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I don't think that's crazy. You know, for you obviously need to have pretty high population density for that to make sense. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's plenty of places that have that. Um, so, I, I don't know. I don't think that's as wild eyes as as wild-eyed as it might sound. Yeah, you know, if I were if I were someone out just kind of like walking along the street, uh, it would feel really weird to me to just like walk, go to where someone lives and pick up my, my Dunkin' Donuts or my Starbucks or what have you. Yeah. On the other hand, if it was someone that lived in my building, yeah, you know, it would be just, you know, it'd be like, okay, they live in my building. It's a neighbor. I'll go 
you know, there's, you know. Yeah. I mean, you'd accept a loaf of, you know, like a loaf of banana bread from a neighbor. Right, right. right. If they if they came up and brought you cookies or something, you'd, oh, you know, thanks. You know, you'd have no problem. Right. Yeah, totally. So. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like if you're gonna if you're gonna take him from individuals working out of their home, there kind of has to be a certain level of trust there. I guess mm-hmm. is, is what I'm getting at. But or or I would maybe have more confidence, not maybe not necessarily trust, but more confidence in in the product. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you see it everywhere though. Like as as the um, convenience increases, the sort of the sort of inherent trust issues, you know, get the barrier get gets lowered. Yeah. So it's just a question of, you know, a psychological shift and probably a, probably regulatory as well. I don't know what the probably rules are. So. There's, yeah. yeah, there's probably all kinds of all kinds of health regulations if you're going to be selling, if you're going to be doing it specifically with food. Right. Yeah. Like no office cat. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a flash of like office cat with like a his hair a and like a yeah, making a bagel with his hair and like a one of those hair nets on his whole body. <laughs> just his little face sticking out. <laughs> I'm getting a little white suit. Get him a little clean suit. Right, right. Booties. Yeah, booties, a little little helmet type deal. Thanks for the bagel office cat. <laughs> so <Wow. laughs> So this this day will come, I promise you. Uh, it's a question of how long it's gonna take. But I did a, I did an article the other day. I'm not sure if I could go into this. I'll cut this out if it comes out too long, but uh, did a, uh, an interview the other day about Best Buy um, swapping out their barcodes. Did you hear about this? No, I didn't. So Best Buy is is one of the large big box retailers that's getting like supremely victimized by this concept of uh, showrooming. Yeah, they're kind of kind of really. Yeah, I mean they're they're ripe for getting damaged by this. So showrooming is where people come in, they look around your inventory, they try out your stuff, they, you know, whether it's a washing machine or a, uh, a home theater. And then they, they find something they like, they go home and they order it cheaper. Yeah, online. they order it cheaper online. And, and they probably don't even go home. Uh, they take out <laughs> yeah. their red laser app or their Amazon app and they scan the barcode on the TV and, uh, you know, one click ship it to their house the next day, free shipping. Yeah. So, so Best Buy's response to this apparently <laughs> was to change the barcodes uh, to something that's custom to Best Buy, and then they do a translation in their POS software to map it back to the real barcode for the item. Not sure that's the best solution. Yeah, that is the exact opposite of what I would have recommended. Yeah. It's. I mean, that's just stupid. Frankly, I mean, as if I couldn't Google for the model number. You know, they're right. just they're just making it harder for their customers to do something they want to do. Why not make it easier? And but a, a Best Buy app on your phone that you scan and push a button, and so you don't have to deal with the lines and the sales clerks and and all of that. Right, right. Or maybe partner with Amazon. Yeah, who's the one that's eating your lunch? Or there's like there's a half a dozen things that they could have done that would have been, and maybe they're going to do them. And this is a stopgap mm-hmm. because they're bleeding, which I'm sure is true. And hopefully, hopefully that's the case. Uh, but if if it what it looks like is a classic case of digging in the heels and and uh, pretending, Resisting. yeah, pretending that you can keep data because it's they're trying to create a data silo. Right, right. And you know, there comes a point too. If everyone is using your business for one specific thing, 
even if that isn't what you intended your business to be, that's what your business is. Yeah. So totally why agree. not partner with these other companies? And maybe your whole point then becomes to be the showroom. Right. Yeah, there are a bunch of things that, that Best Buy could do to that Amazon can't. Because Amazon, Amazon, I I will be shocked. Eh, shocked is strong. I'll be surprised if Amazon ever creates like bricks and mortar Amazon stores uh, because of the tax impl implications. Right. So they're probably not going to get into that business. And so so what can a bricks and mortar uh, retailer do that Walgreens, uh, Walgreens that uh, Amazon can't do? Well, there's tons of things they can do. You know, you could, you know, just to imagine if you walked into a Best Buy and it was like going to a Super Bowl party at your best friend's house. You know, <laughs> like that's what it should be like when you go to a Best Buy. It should it should it should look like fun. It should smell like fun. It should be fun. You know, and, and Amazon can't do that. Yeah, you, you can try out in. the products, talk to someone who's knowledgeable about them. Yeah, it should be it should be encouraged to loiter. You, they should serve wings and beer. There should be live music. You know, there are a million things you could do. They should control the lighting, the smell, the sound. Everything should be. You know, they should control the environment in in a way that makes it like you can't wait to go there. Yeah, like maybe you walk into the section that sells ovens and it smells like fresh baked cookies. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I, you know, obviously, what we're talking, what we're describing is like a massive, you know, shift in in all sorts of operational ways, physical ways, financial ways, and uh, identity, the identity of the store. It's a big giant deal, and you wouldn't be able to just flip a switch, as you know. Yeah. But. Uh, but that's what I feel like that's the future for um, bricks and mortar retail. And you see a lot of clothing, clothing, uh, like teen clothing brands totally do this uh, where you go into like Abercrombie. It's like you're in a nightclub for crying out loud. Uh, I, we went into uh, is it Abercrombie and Fitch. I think it is. It's, it's like super dark and loud. And uh, I remember going in there to buy a present for like a niece or something. And it was just like I was like mortified. <laughs> it's like embarrassing. You know, you feel like an interloper in this teen culture. They're all looking at you like, <laughs> you know. Yeah, you you did it, did it make you feel kind of kind of uncomfortable? Super, uh, yeah, like creepy. Like, yeah, like like you're the you're the old guy in the well, not not that you're old, sorry. No, I was way too old to be in there. That's but for sure. Just the, I don't know. It would it would make me feel kind of like suddenly I'm the predator, you know? Yeah. It was really like, it was like, I, I was not allowed. Like that was not a place for adults. Some mom, yeah. there's some moms in there. Yeah. But, uh, but I mean, mom, moms kind of get a pass on, on. Yeah. Cause it's full of like 13 year old teenage girls and they're like, they're like sitting all over the place under, you know, like under racks, like texting each other. And, and I, that's like that it's, it's a total hang environment. Look, look at an Apple store. It's jam-packed yeah. with people hanging out. 90% of the... Well, okay, I'm not going to... 90% is too high, but a lot of people in our local store are just teenagers checking Facebook. They're never going to buy the computer yeah. that they're playing with, but they might go over and buy um, you know, an iPhone case or yeah, something like that. Yeah, they may go over and buy an iPhone case. They may buy an iPod. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe they can't drop $1,500 on a, on a new MacBook, but they're going to be there and they're going to be in the store and... You know, they're, they're going to buy the less expensive Apple products. Yep. I mean, they're going to be falling and, in and love with iPods. They're going to be falling in love with iPhones and iPads, and eventually the parents going to break down. 
yeah. it's it's loitering should be encouraged like when i was a kid that wasn't it was it was like get in and get out of here you know get what you get what you want and get out of here and yeah. uh and that that kind of shopping experience for for a large number of products is now you know you just do it online like why would you right you know why would you go into a place that doesn't want you there yeah if you can get stuff elsewhere so i don't know so yeah. sort of a... you know for that matter why would you get in your car and drive there <laughs> yeah exactly i mean so the teen market i suppose is different because they want to get out of the house probably at least I right want to, want to hang out with with other teenagers but and you know i guess i guess that's the whole point of of coffee shops and what have you too but um I feel like it's going to change because go in a store, see something you like, you know, maybe you find it online cheaper. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a big thing that you want to buy and it's easier to, to order it from Amazon and have them ship it than it is to try and find a way to get it home in the back of your car. Mm, yeah. Even as the owner of a small business, you know, we have people come in from time to time and they need something fixed and they'll, they'll maybe they'll buy the part themselves off of, of Newegg or what have you and They'll, then they'll bring it to us to fix. Yeah. And what's your what's your reaction to that? Um, from a business perspective, it would be nice if we were the ones, you know, handling all of all of the sales transactions and all you know. It, you know, obviously we would we would prefer if they were buying from us, but on the other hand, you can't really blame them. You right. know, I do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And you're still going to make some money off of helping them getting it get it installed or what have you. So you know, still business. Right. Yeah. It's it's so so. I think that's actually a great little example of of it, where, um, you know, I can remember a time when uh, I would be in, let's say, uh, oh, let's say Borders, and I would have been embarrassed to you know browse around for an hour, and then scan a couple of barcodes off the books and then have them shipped from Amazon uh, or were, you know, even, even funnier buy the Kindle version and not even want the, <laughs> the physical book. But that those days are over. And like that, that embarrassment I think is gone. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I feel like the eighties the was this sort of big box retailers came in and just really blew all the mom and pops out of the water. Yeah. And I, I feel like that pendulum is swinging back now where where the big boxes can't, or at least, at least they're not delivering a, an attractive experience and they're not delivering the lowest prices. Right. So like, w why go there? And why, and and I can see an argument f that, that show roaming is morally, or is wrong on moral grounds, that like you're, you're, you're kind of like, ripping them off is too strong, but you know, you're using them for a service and then not paying for it, sort of. Yeah. But uh, let's say taking advantage of the situation, but that it's just not gonna. People aren't gonna care. Like people don't. Yeah, care. I you know. I I don't really know if there is a. I don't really know if there is a moral obligation because I feel like as a consumer, it's your job to find the best price you can. Right. But you know, on the other hand, I mean, as a. As the owner of a small business, I don't know. It 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 doesn't bother me. Maybe it should, but it doesn't. And because you know, being being a small business, we can't we we can't get distributor 
like for a lot of things because we just don't do the volume. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there have been times where we've said to someone, you know, this is what you need. We can't get it for you any cheaper than, you know, you can, you can get it cheaper from, you know, like you can get it cheaper from new egg than, than we can get it. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. So if I were you, I would do that. And then if you want us to help you put it in, we'll be glad to. Right. Cause it just, I don't know. I guess it's a, it's, it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird because from the consumer's perspective, I don't see a, a problem with it morally. But then as a, as a provider, as a business provider, I would feel really bad if I were screwing my customers out of, you know, out of money right. when they could be saving it. So it, it's kind of, there's kind of a double standard in reverse there for me. Mm. Well, it's, it's kind of like if the, if the model, if the business model was to be a middleman and mark it up, uh, then any businesses where that you, you were the middleman and you were living off a markup, you're in big trouble. Yeah. That's the being a middleman is, uh, is rapidly going away. Ask your, ask your local travel agent. Yeah. Um, so he sends you $500 PDF files. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they make their money now. Yeah. They're all working. They get a deal with AT&T. With AT <laughs> Getting kickbacks from AT&T. Yeah. <laughs> Bigger PDFs, please. Oh man. It's, yeah. God, I don't even get me going on. Oh, <laughs> I just got a bill from Verizon. Uh, what? Forget about it. Forget about it. <laughs> anyway, so big tangent on the future of uh, of bricks and mortar retail there, but uh, I but I think it's it is relevant in the sense that um, the I think the way forward for these people is for these organizations is along the lines of what Walgreens has demonstrated, uh, which is to get connected and uh, you know offer a service that is that you that is better, you know, than what you could get online. So, so the connected future, I promise it's coming and we need APIs to make it work. So yeah, what I, what I want is, you know, like that tube system they have at the bank with like the vacuum tube yes. from the drive through that just takes your, your money and just like sucks it into the, to the <laughs> bank. Yeah. I, I want a large one of those in my house where I can just order something off the internet and then boom, there it is. <laughs> coffee specifically yeah yeah, yeah what, awesome. what, oh you what'd you think of that coffee oh i didn't do it yet so oh, the, no i gotta i gotta do it though so the the uh for the listener kelly gave me this awesome bag of uh kenyan coffee beans yeah i think and they smell amazing you can like squeeze the bag and like smell out of that little gasket thing and uh uh but we have a keurig and there's like I thought we had a, uh, a little dispenser thing that would allow you to put fresh ground coffee in, but I can't find it. So we, and we don't have a coffee percolator of any kind. So I, I guess I could boil it. Right. But or like filter it somehow. But anyway, we did this cold, um, cold press coffee last year, which is what we're going to do with this year. So make like a, you like grind it and steep it in cold water in the refrigerator overnight and then have iced coffee for a week. So, I'm going yeah, to do that. Yeah, it makes but... like a concentrate, and then you dilute it from there, don't you? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I was I was reading up on it this morning because I was curious after you said that. Mm. And actually, I found a tip that I tried this morning on my brewed coffee. Oh and yeah. And that was to when I when I put the the coffee grinds sort of in the in the filter there to I just have a like a percolator. Mm. And so just to to add a pinch of salt to it when you do that, and it takes the bitterness out of the out of the coffee. Really. 
Yeah, it turned out to be really good. It was probably the best cup of coffee I've had in a long time. Wow. Show yeah, notes. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that coffee, that's um, that nice, fresh, um, fair trade, organic Kenyan roast mm. <laughs> is, um, you know, it's it's not a very bitter coffee anyway. But mm. then just adding that little pinch of salt to it, you just there there when I was brewing it, kind of just just took away any any bitterness that it had to it and it was just it was excellent. Wow, that's a great tip. So, very cool. Looking forward to that. I don't know so, if you can hear but it's so a vacuum. So, there you go, on. listener. Uh, yeah, yeah. Teaching you how to make apps that run everywhere and better coffee. Shit. If those two things don't go hand in hand, I don't know what does. Yeah, I don't know what does. <laughs> yeah. So, I can hear the vacuum vacuum monster in the background. Yeah, I thought I heard him. Yeah, so he's going to start banging on the door in a second. So let's wrap this puppy. Um, uh, what about your JavaScript with all your JavaScript yeah, includes and what have you that you yeah, want to Yeah, I'll, I'll try and talk about that. Hopefully they won't get too interrupted. If I have to delete it, I will. But yeah, the um, so background is um, I was contacted by a team working on a large publishing website lots of you know lots of very dynamic data mostly photos uh, a lot of text and they wanted to create a sort of app-like experience for their mobile website of like an image gallery type of thing swipe left and right and you know yada 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 so uh, so I did the JavaScript for it um, Ethan Marcotte did the design um, and it looked great we had it working great on um, everything from you know, I tested on on uh, Kindle Fire, Black BlackBerry Bold, Android, iPhone, everything everything up to um, like a seven inch tablet size. It was working great. It was awesome. We delivered the code to them, and they did the implementation. And they're having <laughs> some bugs. So they they're like, "Hey, could you take a look at this?" So I do, and there's like, you know, we had the JavaScript I put into it into the gallery piece was maybe 200 lines long and uh and ethan had some um stuff from the filament group in there that was you know maybe you know it was like jquery and some typical jquery stuff some plugins and some custom stuff not a ton not a ton of stuff yeah uh so now i look at it now and it's like uh it's got the facebook sharing include you know all the facebook sharing includes oh. it's got which is like a ton of code uh it's got omniture it's got uh two or three different ad servers you know so it's got it's got like eight or nine javascript files included that add zero value to the uh the reader really maybe you could argue that the facebook sharing is is a is a feature but it's like and discuss. They've got discuss in there too. So that's you know you could argue that that's a, a user feature. Yeah, probably not on mobile. Yeah, and and it's like it's just amazing how much JavaScript is in there now. And it's like you know, and there's and there, like some stuff's jittery now, and like uh, banners aren't showing up reliably where they're supposed to. And yeah, oh man, like debugging it is a nightmare. So, anyway, uh, I got to talking with um, Josh Clark about it, uh, and he was saying, hey, isn't it great? Um, 
the filament group released that South Street sort of we talked about it on a previous episode about yeah. it's sort of like a work their workflow tools for building apps like this. And uh, and we got in this conversation about it and he was all excited about it. And I'm excited about it, too, because to me, it, it shows that the sort of space is maturing a little bit because we do need mm-hmm. better tools. Um, the thing, and actually, there's another one I don't think I mentioned last week called Yeoman from Paul Irish and a bunch of dudes at Google. Yeah, um, I've I read a bit about that. It looks it looks interesting, but I, I I didn't read enough about it to really get into the detail. Yeah, yeah, me neither. I mean, I, I saw a video about it. It's not, it. I saw enough about it to think that it was very similar to uh, to South Street. But the thing is, um, there's this trend, and I've seen this before. It's not just this gallery, current gallery project. I've seen it before where um, the a developers like first, so I'm going to build a mobile web app, and you know they you know they sit down at their code editor and they and, and Google and they start googling around for um, in, stuff to include. So mm-hmm. it's like okay, uh, let me pull in jQuery UI or let me pull in iScroll or JQ Touch or Sencha Touch, and then I need um, I need I need galleries. So I'm going to pull in this library from this uh, from GitHub, or I'm going to pull in. And before you know it, or I I want like a client side object relational mapper, and then I'm going to pull in Bootstrap, and I'm going to pull in underscore and jQuery or Zepto, and I'm like, oh, let's use Backbone for yeah. Right, and then like before you know it, uh, you know it's like this sort of Lego approach where they're snapping these pieces in, which makes perfect sense. And it works like a charm on the desktops. This is the thing. It works like a charm on the desktop. Um, but on mobile, you know, people, are, and then, and then they call me, they're like, Oh, we're working on chapter three of your book. And I'm getting like, uh, I'm getting like, you know, it's not working right. And I, first thing I say is send me the code and I'll take a look at it. And I look at it in almost without fail. It's not the example from the book. Yeah. You know, it's it, it like it's recognizable that they started with those files, the sample files, and then they'll include like there's like literally like there'll be 10 JavaScript file it includes from all over the web that, you know, do drop pins on maps and drag and drop and, you know, a million things. And I I am I have a sort of hypocritical reaction to that because I think it's silly to reinvent the wheel and re- be rewriting code which has been done better by other people uh, mm-hmm. in the past jQuery being the most obvious example um, but the big but is you can't just uh, you can't just include a million things like JavaScript and, soup yeah you just can't include a million things and think that it's not going to have a negative impact on the experience yeah so, especially in a mobile environment. Right, right. I mean, you know, it can it can have a negative experience on desktop too. I mean, we kind of mm. we kind of ran into the same thing um, when I was redoing the Fluffington Post a while back, of all things. <laughs> um, you know, it was it's a it's a Tumblr site, so any kind of sort of dynamic things we they wanted on that that was, you know, not part of a Tumblr post, we, you know, we had to pull it with JavaScript, mm-hmm. and so, you know ads and, and discussions and Facebook and all the sharing. Mm-hmm. And finally it ended up where, you know, we had some JavaScript that we were pulling in that was just, uh, it was rendering images and, and HTML and what have you. And I finally ended up, you know, I just, I just, I just looked at the content that was being rendered with the JavaScript rather than, and, and pulled that out and 
stuck some data URLs in the CSS for the little icons and, um, you know, kind of kind of ditch the JavaScript. <clears throat> Excuse me, ditch the the JavaScript for for rendering those components altogether there because a lot of them didn't have to be sort of super dynamic. Mm. And and then just went straight with the HTML and the template. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I suppose that this is true uh, even beyond mobile and desktop. I think it's probably true in general uh, for a framework style approach, right? I mean, like at, okay. at a certain point, you're going to get diminishing returns uh, when you're including all this code that almost invariably has lots of things in it that you don't need in your app right so like when we were building jq touch we had to put in tons of stuff that we may or may not need because uh we didn't you know it was an open source library that people were supposed to encourage to use so we had to kind of accommodate for lots of different kinds of apps right and that means that you know it was kind of like a toolbox you're probably going to want to do this you're probably going to want to do that but now you're carrying around this giant box full of tools and you're only using the screwdriver. Right. So at a yeah, it's, it's, it's the same reason we build most of our stuff off of Sinatra instead of Rails. Yeah, exactly. So at a certain point, you, you know, JavaScripter dude or dudette, uh, you should be asking yourself, whenever you're including a, 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 a new JavaScript file that you didn't write, you should really be asking yourself whether you need it because um, it seems like the the standard operating procedure is for people to just include like 20 things and things is not going to be bad. Yeah. They're like surprised. And I've, I've done this a lot in back-end development and, you know, the same principle applies to front-end. It is perfectly acceptable to take that library that someone else has written, open it up and pull out the one or two functions you need and drop them in and, yeah. and not include all of it. I do that with Modernizer all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Credit your source, mm -hmm. pull out the one or two things you need, and and leave the rest of the, the, the overhead or library behind. Yep. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely exceptions to this. There's certainly, you know, jQuery is a lot of people, you know, right. are, it's very popular for good reason. Um, so that's probably one. I, but I, I never use it for, virtually never use it for mobile. You know, if I'm, it's, there's way too much uh, IE6 in there, which they're going to remove in 2.0, but, yeah. um, you know, regardless, it, it, you shouldn't just be throwing stuff. You shouldn't just be including scripts without really thinking about it and, uh, and as a, almost as a last resort, putting that stuff in there. So my advice is to learn JavaScript. And yeah. Yeah, and actually going through those libraries and finding the things you need and pulling them out, it, you know, it's a it's a really great way to learn it too. Yeah, totally. And, I mean, it, we had the the same experience a while back. If you remember about the uh, the um, uh, XMPP gems in Ruby. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I ended up just going in and and handpicking things from from the gem source, and it worked out much better. Yep. And yeah, I feel like. I don't think it. I don't think it's true for for the developers who've been around and experienced for a long time doing this, but I feel like there are probably a lot of newer developers that maybe sort of rely on the libraries rather than learning the underlying underlying language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a process. It, I mean, yeah, I mean it's a process. You can't blame them. You know, it, it's a lot of people start out that way, and when you can get something up and running, you know, there's, you know. It's a, it's arguably you know, the way to go, mm -hmm. but 
you know, again, it just goes back to to learn learn the underlying technology, and you'll have a better understanding of of what's needed and what isn't, and and how to how to get there without introducing all the overhead and bloat. Yeah. And I mean, it's the same thing. When I first picked up my first experience with Ruby was with Rails, mm-hmm. and when I went back to it and and ditched Rails and just started doing things in Sinatra and writing the Ruby shell scripts, it my understanding of Ruby as a language got so much better. Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, at least, at least, I mean, I suppose everybody's on the, somewhere different on the learning curve. Yeah. Um, and, and if you, in the easier place to start is by including libraries or using other people's frameworks. And, uh, you know, I guess, I guess the, uh, the thing to do is when you get to a point where it's failing for you, for some reason, the graphics are getting jittery or it takes forever to download all the files or whatever, you're getting bad performance, you know, that's an opportunity for you to, um, to dive in yeah dive in and see see what you can get away with removing uh because at least with the mobile web um you know optimization is a a big deal uh it makes a big difference to the experience so you know food for thought so yeah so i can hear like total chaos upstairs <laughs> I I can't hear it now. I could hear it a few minutes ago. Okay. I, I can't now. Yes, yeah, I can hear. They got Cooper just came home and he's <laughs> he's screaming his head off. So the the pitter patter of little feet. Exactly. In little little feet in in large shoes. Yeah, getting getting larger actually. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I guess I guess we could wrap on that. And I wanted that was what I wanted to say about. Uh, about overloading JavaScript into your apps. So you want to call it a day? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'd I'd love to. I'll I'll see you. You know, I'll talk to you tomorrow. I'll just go. And... <laughs> oh, you mean for the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If only. Okay, so that's our show for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. I'm Kelly Shaver. And we hope you join us again next week for the Niche Podcast. Bye.